What a wonderful prayer that is as we come to the text today and think about what it means to be stubborn and hard-hearted against the Lord and to pray even before Him now that He would soften our hearts to His Word. You know, the uh, charge of being stubborn is sort of self-condemning, isn't it? Uh, Either we admit we're stubborn or we stubbornly refuse that we're stubborn, in which case we show that we're stubborn. And that's kind of what happens in uh, today's text with the Israelites as uh, Stephen shows to them their their history of, of stubbornness toward the Lord. And they once again say that they are not stubborn as he condemns them for it. Even when we admit we're stubborn, we're often blind to its depth. Stubbornness is often rooted in an unwillingness to budge, an unwillingness to give any ground. And that stubbornness is often connected to what we will call this morning self-righteousness. We're so convinced that we are right that we won't even consider the possibility that we're wrong. And we'll defend that rightness at all costs. Stubborn. Stubbornness and stubborn self-righteousness is a temptation for all of us. It's especially a temptation for the religious. Because what we can do is we can look back at our past works of righteousness. Well, I've done this and this and this. I wouldn't respond this way. We begin to rest on our laurels, so to speak. Claim our acts of goodness and rightness and maybe even genuine service to the Lord as proof of our own righteousness and rightness and as fodder against the attacks of our own stubbornness. In Acts 6, Stephen's message, his debating, his conversation with the Israelites cuts them to the heart. They're convicted by God's Spirit. But rather than repent of their sin, they dig their heels into the ground and begin attacking Stephen instead. He recounts their history to try to help them see that so often the power of story is that it can kind of open our eyes to the reality of what's going on in our, in our own hearts. And as Stephen recounts their history and their past actions of stubbornness, The Spirit indeed convicts their heart again that that's exactly what's going on now. But instead of listening, they silence him with murder. And what we want to see as we study this angry response of these Israelites is that our hearts can respond the very same ways. Even for those of us who've trusted in Christ as Savior and have walked with Him for many years, we can begin to rest ourselves in our past works of righteousness and begin to harden our hearts to God and His Word, build up our walls of defense, build our little castles to prove to the world what great and powerful and mighty Christians we are. When God seeks to tear down our defenses and work on our hearts and make us more like Jesus. We do battle with the Lord instead of submitting. 
As Stephen speaks with them and brings these charges against them, maybe the weightiest charge of all comes in verses 51 and 52, which are kind of his sermon proposition. You stiff-necked people. I hope I've never had a sermon proposition quite like that here, but that's kind of the point of his sermon. You stiff-necked people. He actually says to them, you uncircumcised in heart and ears. See, this was their point of pride. We're the people of God. We're the circumcised. That was the sign of the people of God, that they were... God's chosen people, they they had the law and they had the temple. And of all people, certainly, they were to be respected. But what Stephen reveals to them is they're actually proving that they're not the people of God in their hearts and by their ears because they're not listening. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. The weight of these words proves to them that... The true children of God, the true people of God are those whose hearts are tender-hearted towards His Word and His Spirit. Not our our claims of the past. Not our claims to fame of of righteousness or things that we've done or, well, look look what we have or look what God has done here. No, the true sign, the true revealing of one who's walking with God is that tender heart towards the Word and towards the Spirit. And so as we come to the text today, though we're in a very different place than these Israelites and than Stephen, the weight of his words ring true for us. What is my heart revealing about my relationship with God? Is it all about what I've done for the Lord? My claims to fame, my works of righteousness, and when God seeks to work on my heart in areas of sin, I plant my foot on the ground and say, no, 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 not I. Or am I tenderhearted to the Word of God? That as I open the Scriptures, I lean in, Long for God's Spirit to reveal where I'm wrong and where I need to become more like Jesus. That's what shows, what displays what's really going on in our hearts. So as we walk through this text, we'll seek to do so rapidly. And we're going to try to help us get the the bird's eye view of what's happening here and see how this incredible contrast between Stephen... Some no-name guy, well, now we have his name, some no-name guy just among the the new believers in Jerusalem there who had God's Spirit. That's it. And then these powerful Israelites who had history, who had the temple, they had the law, they were Moses' followers. The contrast that develops here is that Stephen just just yielded to God's Spirit, is the one who displays God's glory and God's power and God's forgiveness. These mighty Israelites with all their self-righteousness end up revealing the true condition of their hearts, murder and death. 
So let's consider this contrast. And we notice in verses 8 through 15, as the conflict develops, this truth kind of springs from the text here. When God's Spirit convicts us of sin, it is indeed tempting to defend ourselves. You've experienced this before. Something comes up in your mind, or your conscience kind of begins to bother you with something, and, or you, you read a verse of Scripture, and the Spirit brings something to mind, and you sort of begin to think, oh, I, maybe I need to do something about that. It's tempting to begin to defend ourselves. We want to, we want to fight for our own righteousness. And this is the temptation here. Notice how this unfolds. Stephen is set up in this section as as full of the Holy Spirit. And this is the first time that someone other than the apostles is speaking and doing miracles with power. And I think it reminds us that the the strength of the early church was, was actually not the apostles. It was the work of God in those who were yielded to God's Spirit. And so Stephen, just some guy, is the one who works with power here in this scenario. And he's doing signs and wonders, confirming the words of God. Verse 9, we see there's this debate that rises up. And we don't know a lot about this faction of Judaism, the synagogue of the freedmen. It's a special gathering, sort of a small sect among the larger group of Israelites and Jews. And the freedmen probably just refers to the fact that they may have been enslaved at some point and had either earned or been granted their freedom, maybe had moved back to Jerusalem and wanted to live their, now their free lives, to, to live their free lives for God, to be close to the temple. I, we don't know. We don't know exactly what this all means. But they're, they're from all over. And Luke mentions the locations, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those are in North Africa, so kind of across the Mediterranean Sea. Alexander, excuse me, I mentioned that one, Cilicia and Asia, so kind of to the east, to the north. Cilicia, interestingly enough, uh, Tarsus is the leading city of Cilicia at this time, which happens to be where Saul, or later known as the Apostle Paul, is from. And he does show up at the end of our account today, and so it is just possible that the Apostle Paul, Saul, is one of these, of the synagogue of the freedmen, debating with Stephen, even here in this text. We don't know for sure, but it's possible. Interesting. So, this, they, they, there, there arises this dispute with Stephen. And verse 10 is just powerful. It says, They could not resist the wisdom of the Spirit of God in Stephen. As Stephen is speaking to them and the Spirit is helping them, they can't resist. I mean, so the the debate is won. Stephen has won the debate. I mean, there's no question. They can't deny that Jesus is the Christ. And so they resort to other tactics, verse 11. Logic can't win the day. Reason won't do it. Stephen has won the debate. And so they begin to bring charges of blasphemy against him in verse 11. So it's beginning to sound a lot like what happened to the Lord Jesus. So they bring these charges of blasphemy that that Stephen is speaking against Moses and against God. And remember, these were their sources of pride as Jews, as Israelites. We, we are the followers of Moses. We have the authority on God. How dare you disrespect our Moses and our God? And so these are the charges. They stir up the people, verse 12, and they seize them and bring them before the Sanhedrin, the same group that we've been seeing over and over again, right? 
Peter and John stood before them. Jesus, in fact, stood before the Sanhedrin. They bring false witnesses, charging him further. And here we see the connection. What's their charge against disrespecting Moses? Well, Stephen must have been saying something along the lines of that Christ came to do away with the law. The law was given through Moses. So there's the connection there. Uh, What's the other charge? They mention that it has to do with the temple. And so... Stephen must have been uh, speaking about the fact that God's presence was not always intended to be in the temple. Jesus had spoken this way, that, that at some point even the temple would be destroyed. And so they bring these charges, which may have had some degree of truth to them, but they're twisted and they're meant to tear Stephen down. The section ends in a strange way in verse 15 when it says that as they looked at Stephen, they saw his face like an angel. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but what is often said of angels when they appear? There's, they're bright. They're white. There's this, there's this purity that radiates from them. And I think that's what Luke intends to imply here, that Stephen's face was just, just pure and honest. Like He just wasn't... There's no guile in him. There's no deceit here. As they're bringing up false witnesses, he's speaking the truth. And it may have even been that Stephen's face was glowing. And we don't know that. It's a guess. But why else say that it was like an angel glowing? Now that idea, that idea of light glowing, and even the glory of God is a thread that weaves all through this text. That Stephen consistently is the one displaying the glory of God and that his debaters here, the Israelites, the Jews, are the ones suppressing and denying the glory of God. Just notice, you'll see it come up quite a bit. So here Stephen is, maybe even reflecting literally the, the glowing face, the glory of God. So what we see is that when God's Spirit convicts us of sin, it is tempting to defend ourselves. And they seek to defend themselves against uh, the speaking of Stephen. And they do this by criticizing, by lying, by deceiving to try to silence the one who has helped them see their sin. We have to remember it is tempting to defend ourselves in those moments. When God convicts us of sin, we often bring to mind excuses or explanations or things that sort of talk us out of that conviction. Went through a recent debate like that in my own mind. Something had happened in an interaction, and uh, the Lord just kept bringing it to my mind. It weighed on my heart, and wrestling through, oh man, was I... Did I really mess that up? Was my, were my motives right? And searching my heart and asking the Lord. And all of these thoughts, you know, were in my head. And many of them, no, no, it's no big deal. Right? Yeah, you didn't intend to do that. And it's just, just let it go. They won't care. You know? All these excuses. And as I'm wrestling through that in my heart, I brought the issue to Carrie. I said, hey, help me, help me see this. What are your thoughts? And so I explained what had happened and how it unfolded. And her outside perspective was helpful. And in the the end, she just helpfully said to me, well, if it's really weighing on your heart this much, does that mean maybe the Lord wants you to make it right? Hmm. Well, that seemed really easy. (laughs) And so I had to make it right. Talk to the Lord. Go to the person and seek forgiveness. Even in sharing that, 
Notice the temptation of, of my heart, and maybe you've been there as well, to then look back on that and say, yeah, I, I made my sin right. <laughs> I'm a good Christian. Uh, then I'm just resting in my self-righteousness again. And building up my own walls of righteousness so that the next time the Lord wants to help me see my sin, I'm ready to stand and say, no, 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 remember a week ago, I took care of my sin. I'm righteous. This is why it's so important that as Christians we rest in the righteousness of Christ and not our own. When God's Spirit convicts us of sin, it is so tempting to defend ourselves. We rehearse stories of the good old days and all that we've done for Jesus. I'm a faithful church attender and I'm involved. I served in this way for this many decades. I've done these good works. We know our salvation is not by good works. We know that. But we tend to build our Christian lives on our good works and think of ourselves as, well, I have actually become quite righteous rather than just claiming the righteousness of Christ. That's it. That's our claim. There's so many things we bring into our lives as conscience soothers. It can't be me. I can't be the problem here. I've done this and this and this. But the Spirit, through the Word, tears down our righteousness and points us to Jesus. This is the very heart of the Gospel, that we are unrighteous. And we need, desperately, we need a Savior. We need one who has perfect righteousness. And only Jesus can be my claim. And so when it's tempting to defend ourselves and to resist the Holy Spirit, We must humble ourselves and claim once again the righteousness of Christ. To turn to the Lord with tender hearts. Say, yes, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ. I want to live for you. As we look back at our lives, rather than letting it build our sense of righteousness It really ought to be our past responses that reminds us of our tendency to resist God's Spirit. And this is where Stephen turns next. Our pattern of self-defense only further reveals our resistance to God's Spirit. This is really what Stephen's speech is all about. It's not just the pattern of Israel. It's the pattern of mankind. It's interesting because these specific Israelites had not committed the specific sins that Stephen mentions through his speech. He's not charging them, having done these wrongs that he recounts. He's just explaining to them what the human nature is in response to God and His Word, in hopes that they will see that they are actually now responding the same way that Israel had responded so many times in the past, that mankind in general responds to the Lord as we resist His Word. So, I'm going to move quickly through this sermon. It's 53 verses long. And it has a number of sections, so we're not going to discuss every verse. I'll move through the sections quickly and try to give you the bird's eye view. You can follow along in your text as I seek to do this. A little bit of an experiment here. This is like Stephen's sermon on fast forward. It's kind of the way we'll think of it. 
He opens in verses 2 through 8 and goes all the way back to the very beginnings of Israel with their father Abraham. And I think what's being highlighted here and will continue to come up through the rest of the sermon is that God's blessing on them was just God's kindness. It wasn't based on the fact that they had the law or that they had the temple or that they were located in the land. God's blessing was not based on those things. God had just shown them mercy. And he goes all the way back to Abraham to begin this. Abraham wasn't in Israel when God first called him and chose to bless him. It wasn't based on anything that Abraham had done. They didn't have the law at this point. And so he rehearses for them how God had been kind to Abraham. He also points out in this section that Israel will have a time in Egypt when they will be awake from the land and God would deliver them out and that they knew the exact amount of that time, which will be important. God had told them, you'll be in Egypt for this amount of time and I will redeem you out of Egypt after 400 years. That brings us to the next section, 9 through 16. Stephen now moves to Joseph. And he, exi- he, he, he begins to explain the hard-heartedness we begin to see in the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, who, as we see in verse 9, were envious of Joseph. Remember, God had given Joseph these dreams. God was going to use Joseph to do something. And as soon as the brothers found out about this, they were jealous. They rejected God's chosen leader, sold him into slavery, and yet God still used Joseph to care for them. <laughs> their blessing from God was not based on their righteousness. It was just God's kindness. They had been jealous and had sold Joseph into slavery. And so Stephen begins pointing these things out to them. And there, even there in their patriarchs, they evidence the rejection of God's word and God's leading. 17 through 19 comes to the next section and the Israelites are now in Egypt. And he points out in verse 17 that the time is coming near for their deliverance, right? The time that had been predicted, So if the Israelites had been listening to God's word, they would have known, ah, okay, check your watches. The time is coming. God's going to raise up a deliverer so we can return to our land. Moses was that deliverer. And Moses even expected that the people would understand that. But they didn't. Verse 25 says, Moses went to his people in hopes that they would understand he was supposed to be the deliverer. But as soon as Moses begins to save his people from the Egyptians, they they say to him, who made you a ruler over us? And they reject him. Moses flees. That leads us to verses 30 through 36. This is the time that Moses is in the wilderness. And God's glory once again comes up in this section. As Moses encounters God in the burning bush, Stephen uses the word angel or angel of the Lord, which is often used in the Old Testament as an appearance of God. Maybe even the pre-incarnate Christ here appears to Moses in the bush. And Moses receives God's word and goes to Israel. He's God's chosen leader for Israel. He redeems them out of the land, and yet even then, they reject God's leader. In verses 37 through 43, Stephen highlights even further how Israel rejects Moses. Moses had talked about a prophet who would come. This is one of the predictions in Scripture about the Messiah. That there would be another prophet like Moses who would bring the words of God and the people should be ready to listen to that prophet. Verses 37 through 43, he talks about how 
as God was giving the law, this law that they claimed so proudly that they had and that they kept, he calls them back to the time they received that law. And as Moses was in the presence of God's glory, and remember Moses' face even glowed as he was with the Lord comes down from the mountain and the people have chosen a God for themselves. They've made a calf and they're ready to have Aaron and these other gods lead them. And so Stephen quotes Amos chapter 5 there in verses 42 and 43 is God's pronouncement of judgment. They've turned away from the Lord and made gods for themselves. And so they will go into captivity in Babylon. Verses 44 and following begins to talk about the tabernacle and the temple. Remember, this was their other claim to fame. Uh, We have the temple right here in Jerusalem. If anyone's close to God, it's us, right? So Stephen goes back and says, well, let's talk about the tabernacle and the temple. God had given them the tabernacle as a witness to his presence, verse 44. And that tabernacle continued through the time of Joshua. And even into the days of David, it was still a tabernacle. God kindly dwelt among them by His presence. It was actually David's idea to build a house for the Lord. And Solomon is the one who brought it to pass. But what Stephen points out in verses 48 and following is that God never intended the temple to be His permanent dwelling place. God God doesn't dwell in a house made with hands. He reigns over the universe. He sits on His throne in heaven. He doesn't dwell in a temple. It was never God's plan that the temple would be His permanent dwelling place. In fact, the Israelites had missed the fact that God's presence had already left the temple back in Ezekiel chapter 10. So all of this leads to the climax in verse 51 where Stephen says to them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So all these examples of their past are just meant to help them see you're doing the same thing. God brought this prophet that Moses predicted, the Lord Jesus Christ, And you continue to resist the Holy Spirit. The irony is that God's Spirit is now speaking to them through Stephen. And they continue to resist. So verse 52, Stephen asks these rhetorical questions. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? As the speakers of God were present among God's people over and over and over again, they were ignored and persecuted. He asks another one, and they, uh, they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. So just like the previous Israelites had tortured and even killed the prophets who predicted the coming of the Messiah, even so now they have killed the Messiah himself. All of this then concludes in verse 53. You have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. We don't know exactly what is referred to by the direction of angels. It may be that God somehow had used angels in in, in bringing the law to the people of Israel. That's sort of just a side note of the text. The point is that all that they had to brag about, Oh, we've got the temple. Now we've got the law. How dare you attack Moses and speak against God's temple here? And Stephen's sort of highlighting, look, 
The blessing of God was not based on you having the law or having the temple. In fact, God's intention was never that the law would endure forever. God's intention was never that the temple would endure forever. In fact, you're not even keeping the law. In fact, God's presence is not even in the temple any longer. You've totally missed the point. Why? Because they're stubborn and hard-hearted. Now, lest we get too down on the Israelites. We have to remember that this helps us see our sin as well. Our patterns of self-defense only further reveal our resistance to God's Spirit. Whatever it is that we boast in, whatever we would claim as righteousness, only works to condemn us. Let's say it's our good works. Let's say when, when God works in my heart and I think, well, no, that, that can't be true, right? I mean, I'm a pastor and I've done all these really good things. And so, you know, probably just, you know, something, you know, just not thinking right here. It can't be God's spirit. And so I lean on the things I've done. But, but the question is, if I'm going to lean on my good works, have I really done every good work that I should have done? Have I said everything just right and done every good work possible? And every time there was an opportunity to do right, I did right. Do I really want to lean on my good works as my claim? No way. As soon as I begin leaning on that, it condemns me because I have failed. Maybe I'll lean on my church attendance. I'm pretty faithful in church, usually here most Sundays, right? And yet, I've missed. I've not been here. It's happened, right? Oh, guess I can't claim that one any longer. Or sometimes we lean on a past decision. Well, I'm serving God with my life as a pastor. Or maybe you made some decision at camp. I gave my life to Christ, so I'm good. But the question is always, what is my heart doing towards God right now? We don't rest in our past works of righteousness. No, we rest in Christ's righteousness alone. And so, because of His righteousness, we turn our hearts to Him constantly. Oh, thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. I want to live for you. The very act of self-defense reveals our self-righteousness. When the Word convicts me of pride in my heart, I try to talk myself out of it and give my reasons and explanations. But the truth is this, whatever I am ever accused of, while I may not have committed that act exactly, it will always be true that it's in my heart, somewhere in there. By God's grace and kindness, I have not yet in my life murdered someone. But murder is in my heart because I have been angry. Jesus makes it clear in His instruction. So, even, even when accusations come against us and we're quick to defend ourselves, we just pause and reflect for a moment, okay, well, I may not have done that, but it's not because I'm righteous. I'm unrighteous. It's but by the grace of God that my sinful heart hasn't displayed itself in that way yet. But what you accuse me of, it's in there. It's in there. Our only claim 
is the righteousness of Christ. Our righteousness is only found in Him. Maybe for you today, you need to come to this realization for the first time to recognize that any claims of righteousness of your own are futile and end up coming back to condemn you as unrighteous before a holy God because you have not been perfect. You do not measure up to His perfect glory. There's only one way to be right with a holy, perfect God, and that is to receive holy perfection from God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died to pay for your sins so that your wicked account could be removed from your ledger, and that Christ's perfect righteousness could be placed there instead. Not just human righteousness, but divine righteousness, so that you can forever be right with God making no claim to your works and acts and life and the things you've done in the past, but in gratitude to the one who's made you righteous to just continually say, yes, Lord. Oh, keep making me more like Christ. Help me to see my sin. I repent. I trust you. Work in me. This is the gospel. This is the Christian life to deny our righteousness. I wonder, is the pattern of our lives self-defense, stubbornness? When was the last time I said the words, I am wrong, I have sinned, I need help, without qualification? Our pattern of self-defense only further reveals our resistance to God's Spirit We notice the final contrast leads us to point number three today. As the self-righteous murder and destroy, the Spirit-filled forgive. Why? Because this is what God is like. He's forgiving. And so here, Stephen, who's experiencing injustice. I mean, they've they've lied about him and they've borne false witness. And now they've, without a fair trial, they've taken him out of the city and they're throwing rocks at him. As he's dying, he says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Where does that come from? Not from Stephen. That's what our God is like. Those are the words of the Spirit working in Stephen's life to cry out to God what God's very heart is for these people stoning Stephen. Oh, that they would be forgiven. This is another sign of those who have yielded to God's Spirit. Forgiveness just pours from their lives. Because that's what God is like. So Stephen calls for their forgiveness. Do not charge them with this sin. (laughs) The contrast is so obvious back in verse 54. They're cut to the heart. They gnash at him with their teeth. And that means they're grinding their teeth. They're not like actually trying to bite him or anything. They're just grinding their teeth. Jaws clenched. They're just angry. Because he's right. So as they grind their teeth at him, and it's Stephen, I mean... Poor guy, if he was trying to stay alive, this isn't the wisest move he makes next. He just kind of begins describing what he's seeing. He sees heaven open. He's like, guys, I see the Lord Jesus in heaven, the Son of Man. And he's just describing what he's seeing. And they just 
all the more angry. They run at him. As Stephen shares these things, I think they really happened. I think the heaven opened and Stephen saw the Lord Jesus standing at the right end of God. And all of this is just confirming that of the two parties here, Stephen's the one displaying the glory of God. And God gives him this glimpse of, Stephen, you're doing the right thing. Jesus is standing. The testimony of Scripture is often that he's sitting, but of course the Lord can stand whenever he wants to there at the Father's right hand and stands maybe to prepare to welcome Stephen home. He knows he's coming shortly. And as they cast their stones at him, they, they actually stop their ears and begin screaming so they can't hear Stephen any longer. We look at that and we just like, wow, what a temper tantrum. It's kind of how they're acting here, like, ah, you know, don't listen to Stephen. But is this not what's in our hearts? Finally, they can't take any more of it, so they rush at him and take him out of the city and stone him. Stephen, his faith is not shaken. He turns to the Lord, Lord, receive my spirit. He knows where he's headed. He's trusted in Christ. His destination is not based on his works of righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ. And he knows where he's going. He's not upset with these murderers. And he calls even for their forgiveness, and the Lord takes him home. While these Jews proudly claim God's presence in the law and in the temple, Stephen there just glows with the glory of God as these murderers take his life. Luke points out to us that Saul is there. He he may have joined the crowd at some point, maybe when he went to the sand. We we don't know exactly how Saul got involved. But I love that God answers the prayer of Stephen. We haven't read it yet in Acts, but Stephen says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin Saul, it's right there. You know what happens to Saul. Just a few chapters from here, Saul is converted by the Lord. I mean, this is not some work of Saul like, well, I guess I should turn to God. No, No, Jesus steps into Saul's life and converts him. (laughs) Maybe because Stephen prayed. (laughs) By God's work in Stephen, of course. But what an answer to Stephen's prayer. And what a display of the heart of God that even as these men murder Stephen, God's ready to forgive them. Oh, that they would just have tender hearts. And God answers the prayer of Stephen in just a few chapters. As the self-righteous murder and destroy the spirit-filled forgive I wonder when your motives and actions are brought into question, do you get angry? When you're convicted by the word, do you get defensive? It's interesting, this text sort of reveals something that's true in life. Self-righteousness always leads to death. The truth always disarms our self-righteousness. Reality, reality just proves that we have not 
and cannot do enough to make ourselves righteous. We, we just have to reckon with that truth. It will come up in our lives. And when that truth comes out, we can either accept it that I am not righteous and trust in Jesus as Savior and yield to the Spirit in our lives, or we can resist. And the, the scary truth is that the way God operates is that He, he does allow us to resist. When we resist... We cling to our self-righteousness, and it always leads down one of two paths. Fight or flight. Some of us try to flee or escape the reality of my unrighteousness. This is the path of fear. We hide, we deceive, we lie, we run. We give ourselves to distractions and escapes. We withdraw, and we withdraw, and we withdraw. And in the end, we can't escape the reality that our self-righteousness is not enough. And the end of this path, if a person will not turn to salvation in Christ, the end of this path is death. Death by suicide. Death by completely withdrawing from reality altogether. The other path is to fight reality. This is what we see here in the Israelites. In order to defend their self-righteousness, they go on the attack. We do this too. We argue, we debate, we explain, we justify. We tear down the character of others in order to make ourselves look better. We force people to submit to our reality. We run them out of our lives. And if they don't leave or change their perspective, we end them. The end of this path is also death, death by murder, as we see in this text. See, self-righteousness leads to murder and destruction. It is the path of death. We must not lean on our self-righteousness. It's a lie. The answer is a tender heart to the Spirit and the Word. First, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. To lay down your righteousness, which is actually unrighteousness. To admit you are a sinner through and through. And to accept the payment of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Let God exchange your filthy rags for His robes of righteousness. Let the risen Savior give you a new life. Believe in Him today. And then walk with a tender heart. So many believe in Jesus and resort then to self-righteousness and develop a hard heart towards God. Well, yes, well, fine, He saved me, but I'm going to do the rest. All we have to claim ever, forever, is the kindness of God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. Tenderheartedness does not mean that we are weak. It is actually marked by strength. Because nothing can tarnish the righteousness of Christ. Nothing can make me insecure in the love of God if the righteousness of Jesus is my claim by faith. You see, this tenderheartedness towards God and His Word is a position of great strength. Was Stephen not strong in this encounter? We are so secure in Christ that we can readily admit our sin and turn from it 
and yield again to God. This readiness to confess and repent leads to two powerful results in our lives. Number one, we grow in our love for God. As my awareness of my sin grows, I love God more and more for the growing size of His forgiveness toward me. We also grow in our yieldedness to God's Spirit. As I keep turning to Him and submitting to Him, I grow in my ability to display the fruit of the Spirit in my life and to offer forgiveness to those around me as they sin against me, much like we see in Stephen's life here. And that becomes the great litmus test of this passage. You want to know whether you're walking in the flesh in your own righteousness or whether you're walking in the Spirit in the righteousness of Christ, then consider this question. When you are wronged, when you are truly mistreated, do you call for the judgment and the punishment of the offender, or do you call for their forgiveness? As the self-righteous murder and destroy, the Spirit-filled forgive. Through this text, The Israelites show their rejection of God. They're the ones who did not listen to Moses about the coming prophet. Their worship and their uh, law-keeping, their pride in the temple had caused them not even to realize that they were far, far from God and were not truly His people. Instead, it was the believers who had trusted in Christ as Savior who had God's Spirit in them. And so we see in this text that this may be the most foundational mark of a believer, this tender-heartedness towards God, not righteousness. Oh, yes, that the Lord would be growing us in our sanctification and holiness, but really where we see the true believers in Christ are those who claim the righteousness of Christ and by faith continue to just be tender to His Word. One of my last memories with my grandpa, my mom's dad, was in Colorado. We were visiting him and the rest of our family, a little family reunion. And uh, I believe I was in college at the time, a Bible college student. And um, my grandpa had walked with the Lord for many, many years and, and knew he was you know, nearing the end of his life. At that point, he was really weak and was in a, a, a motorized wheelchair. It had a little joystick he could move around. And knowing that I was in Bible college, uh, Grandpa had, had said, uh, Hey, w- I'm going to gather the family together. Would you share a little devotional? Uh, okay. <laughs> so I was, you know, quickly rifling through my Bible, trying to find something I could share uh, with the family. And as the family gathered, you know, around the extremities of the room, and I I sat down in my chair, you know, again, mind racing, okay, what am I going to share here? What are we going to talk about? There there was Grandpa, you know, joystick pushed all the way forward, just like zooming towards me in my chair, uncomfortably close. You know, he's like getting closer and closer to me, and he stops it right there in front of me, and he leans in and he says to me, pour it on, I need it. And that has always stuck with me. That, that was the pattern of his life. He, he had served the Lord on the mission field in Mexico for years. But, 
but not raise support. They, they would work six months so they didn't have to be a burden to anyone. And they would go down to Mexico to serve there. And he'd been a member of his church and, and a deacon and a faithful servant. I mean, no, a no-name guy, no claim to fame. He was one of those guys that he could, he could have pulled up in front of me and said, well, did I tell you about the time I did this for the Lord? That wasn't who he was. He just leaned in and said, I need the word. Let's hear it. From some young college student who had very little to share with the family, Grandpa wanted the word. I wonder, as we grow As we progress in the Christian life, are our hearts growing more and more tender to the Scriptures? Oh, that God would change us by the working of His Word and the working of His Spirit. Friend, it may be that you have seen some hard-heartedness in your own life even this morning. Can I encourage you that the final words of Stephen about the heart of God Even now, the Lord calls to you for forgiveness. Lay down your arms. Put down your fists. Don't defend your righteousness. Turn to a God who is full of mercy, who gave His Son for you. Don't resist His Spirit anymore. Would you turn to Him today? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that in our hard-heartedness, you have shown us your love and your mercy. You reached into our lives by the power of your Spirit. You softened our hearts to your Word. And our only claim is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We praise you for what you've done through Jesus. Oh, help us, Lord, to walk faithfully with you, not leaning on any past work, but just today being tender to your word and to your spirit. May we be a church that, like Stephen, is just defined by your presence here among us because we're yielded to you. And may your glory radiate from this place as a people who are soft to your word and committed to living for you because of what you've done for us. We ask for your help in this and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.